All right, so we're starting this new series, and uh, it's like Andy said, five weeks in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. And uh, if you want to find that in your Bible, it's not going to be too difficult. It's just page 31, not even into the hundreds. That's how early it is, page 31. And uh, I wonder how, uh, when you think of your life, I, I suppose, like Andy said, you know, there's this, this thing of suffering. And I suppose most of us realize that if we're not suffering at the moment, we probably will be at some point before too long. Suffering just seems to keep on coming around, doesn't it, in some way or another. Life has its challenges. And, and it seems to me like between the suffering and between the struggles, the rest of life, often it feels a little bit sort of mundane, do you know what I mean? Just sort of the, the same old, same old every day. You get up, you have breakfast, you, you kind of go to work or you don't go to work or you go to school or whatever, and you do what you do and you come home and, and it, the day just kind of ticks past. You know, it's like there's this clock and it just keeps moving and life just seems to be this sort of steady progression of normalness interspersed with suffering. That, that's kind of life, isn't it? That's what life feels like. And I suppose the thing about that is that it can be demoralizing, it can be draining, it can be discouraging, and we can wonder, okay, how am I supposed to live in the midst of this? God seems to be distant. If God's doing anything, he's doing it somewhere else, right? If, if, if there's something exciting going on, it's probably on another side of the world, and we see the news, and you watch the news, and you go, oh, wow, look at what's happening, and what's happening seems to be in LA or New York or London, maybe. It seems to be somewhere other than Wiltshire. I don't know if you've noticed that. Wiltshire's not really on the news too much. And so it just feels like we're living these lives and just kind of going through the routines of life, and it can just feel a little bit flat. And then Andy, a couple of weeks ago, Andy stood up and preached about the story of the Bible, the story from the beginning to the end of time, and it's this great big epic story of history. And he made the comment that the hero of the story is God. And that the story isn't primarily about you or about me. And so when you add all these things together, it can feel a bit like, yeah, okay, this is interesting, but this is about something else, and here I am, and nothing's happening here, and I'm, I'm sort of moving between tragic, sadly sometimes, pathetic most of the time perhaps, epic very rarely. And yet this is an epic and, and even though the story is not about us, it's a story that involves us. And one of the biggest challenges we have is to figure out how am I supposed to live my life which seems so much removed from epic while being part of something that supposedly is epic. How do I live here in this circumstance, in this situation, with this difficulty, with this struggle, with this illness, with this child crying at 2 a.m. yet again, with, with the normal things of life going on, how am I supposed to kind of live as if, as if I'm part of an epic? It doesn't feel very epic. And so what we're going to do by spending five weeks uh, in the life of Joseph is we're going to be kind of putting ourselves into his sandals and it's very easy when you do that, when you go into a Bible story, to think, well, now, here we go. This guy lived epic, right? He really knew what was going on. And, and because somebody in the Bible has a key role and does a key thing, it's easy for us to read that as if that's so far removed from where we are that we can't relate to it. But the truth is, 
That while on the one hand, Joseph's life is a, an epic life and it's a, an amazing story and God really worked through it, for the most part, at the same time as all of that stuff was going on, he had no idea. He really had no clue that his life was part of something bigger. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to walk with Joseph and we're going to sort of immerse ourselves in his story. We're going to unleash this story in our lives. And hopefully what we'll find is that it's helpful for us as we live lives that strangely might parallel his in some way. Even though he's 4,000 years ago almost and even though it's so far removed and so foreign and there's going to be a pharaoh and there's going to be some other things going on, even with all the differences, we're going to read the life of Joseph and hopefully we're going to find, actually, yeah, I can relate to that. Actually, yeah, it's not so far removed from where I am. And as God's word is unleashed into us, hopefully we'll have a sense of how to live the mundane Mondays of life. And then the, the terrifying Tuesdays. So whether it's the, the sort of the every day, oh, my life's so pathetic, or whether it's one of those horrible days like my life's so tragic, how do we live in the midst of the pathetic and the tragic as if we're part of the epic? Okay, so let's look at the story of Joseph. It starts really in Genesis chapter 37, which is on page 31 of the Black Bibles. And so Genesis is this first book in the Bible. Let me just orient us to what's going on uh, to save us reading through the first 36 chapters really quickly right now. So let me just tell you what's happened so far. Uh, the first 11 chapters, God created everything and then humanity messed everything up by sinning. And then God judged with the flood. You remember the story of Noah and the boat and the animals? That happened. And then there's the Tower of Babel where God confused all the languages and nations were created. And so that's kind of like the, the scene setting of Genesis. That's getting the world sort of up to speed. And then the story focuses in on people. And we think about it really as being four events and four generations. And the four generations uh, really are, are sort of the uh, progression of what we call the patriarchs. That's kind of a cool title. Uh, if, if you, you know, go uh, to a job application or, or whatever, you're filling it in and you put in title patriarch, it's quite impressive. I don't think they would have used that title. Okay, so with all the patriarchs, what we have is this combination of being incredibly epically involved in God's great story and most of the time not realizing it. So you've got Abraham. God called Abram in Ur of the Chaldees. He was an idol-worshipping pagan, and God called him, and he promised him some great things. He was going to give him a land. He was going to give him descendants. He was going to bless him. He was going to make his name great. All of these promises, and from chapter 11 to 25, as you read it through, Abram is struggling to believe. And God makes promises and Abraham struggles and he gives his wife away and he misses the land and he does all these crazy things. And you think, my goodness, what's your problem, Abraham? Like surely you're the one who's supposed to, to get it all and you're supposed to trust God. And actually it's massively reassuring to know that he took decades of God's patience to get anywhere. And then after Abraham comes his son, Isaac, and Isaac is so much a copy or a clone of his dad that we basically just get a chapter with just a few hints to say, yeah, same again. Okay, you know the Abraham story? Yeah, Isaac too. And then the next one is his son, Jacob, and Jacob is a bit of a character. All right, Jacob, if you read his story, you'll see that he really takes a long time to get it. Now, bear in mind that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all met with God face to face. 
Jacob wrestled with God face to face. That's kind of cool, unless you're Jacob, I suppose. But, but they, there's this progression in all of their lives where there's these amazing things going on, and yet for the most part, they don't trust, and they don't believe, and they struggle, and they doubt, and they make a mess of things, and they make bad decisions, and they take a situation that's okay, and they make it into a bad situation. Maybe a little bit like us. You ever feel like you're testing God's patience? It's okay, read Genesis and you'll see that he's very patient as we learn to trust him. So there's Jacob and he was a a real mess. He was a deceiver. He was, I mean, just all sorts of confusion. Jacob then had some children. Actually, he had quite a few. He had 12 sons, at least one daughter from four women. So, you know, even before the story starts, there's trouble, right? Uh, He's got two wives, one of whom he liked, the other one he didn't really want, but got her anyway. And then they both had uh, sort of maidservant type deals, uh, what would you call that, concubines. So he's got two proper wives and two not very proper wives. And he's got 12 sons and he's got at least one daughter. And this is the story of Jacob, really, of Jacob's family from chapter 37 through to 50. And we tend to think of it as the story of Joseph, but it's really the story of all of his sons. Okay, so here's my challenge, my encouragement to you. Genesis 37 to 50, this chunk that we're going to be looking at, I dare you to read it. All right? You knew I was going to say that. Like, read it. Don't just, like, sort of read it. Don't just kind of go, oh, that's an interesting verse. Like, proper, proper read it. I would even say read it out loud. Stop yourself from getting distracted. Read it out loud if you can, or if you, if you struggle to read, listen to it. Just go online. You'll find, be able to find it. We can help you what, whichever way you do it, whether you are hearing your own voice or the voice of somebody else, David Suchet or whoever. You can hear Genesis read out loud. And, and 37 to 50, it's going to take you probably just under an hour if you go at a steady pace. If you really motor through it, probably like 40, 45 minutes. So it's not, you know, the end of the world. It's not like you've got to write off your week. But take that chunk of time and experience the whole story, right? Because we're going to just be dropping in and dealing with it in five bits on Sundays. But I want you to see how amazing the arc of this whole story is for yourself, Okay, so that's another dare, and I'll leave that one with you. So let's jump into it then. Genesis 37. Let me just read the first 11 verses. It says this, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, or stay, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's, quote, wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. 
Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. All right, that's a pretty dysfunctional start to a story, isn't it? I mean, that, that's a mess. It's interesting when you think about it that the, the struggles of life and the biggest pains in our life tend to come in the context of family. Right? It's not usually, you know, I was walking down the road and there was this, you know, bomb and this, you know, plane kind of hit my head or whatever. Most of the time, the, the struggles of life are struggles with family. And this is very real, isn't it? I mean, just think about it. We've got here uh, Jacob with his sons. We know that his sons come from four different women. In this case, it mentions the two that are not the real wives. And the, the, the sons they had are the oldest ones, the ones with power and influence, you'd think, in the family. And then there's Joseph, who at this point could have been the youngest or at least second, at most, second youngest. And so there's a tension within the family. Families are tense environments at the best of times. But once you blend four mothers' worth of children together... Blended families are complex, aren't they? That's not an innovation of the 21st century. Here's a blended family in Genesis. Okay, so on the horizontal level between the brothers, there's massive, massive tension. Joseph is the favored son because he's the firstborn of the wife that Jacob wanted in the first place, Rachel. And so Joseph would have had a bit of a swagger because of who his mother was. And then to make matters worse, his dad decided to give him this coat. You know, who'd think a coat could create so much stress? But he gives him this coat, and it's translated as being a coat of many colors. Literally, what it says is a coat with long sleeves, which doesn't sound that astonishing, does it? But a coat that reached down to to the wrists and down to the ankles, it's a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of the person is not a worker. This is the person that's in charge. This is the heir of the estate. And so Joseph's walking around with his you know, plush coat on, and the, his brothers don't like that. And then he brings an evil report or a bad report about his brothers, which it means that he was telling a tale on them. They, they were doing this, Dad, and, and, and he said this, and then he did that, and by the way, this one did that. And, and he's telling the truth, not very wise, I wouldn't think, but he's telling the truth. So in a sense, we, we don't really want to criticize him too much. But he's bringing a tale back to his father, and that's creating tension. And then just to really ramp it up, he then has these dreams and then tells them. Oh, hey, guys, I had a dream. Now, I don't know if your family likes to report dreams, if, if that's a thing in your family. For us, it happens. I learned years ago that when you start telling a dream at the breakfast table, whoever is about, I don't know, three or four, they want to tell you their dream. Problem is, they can't remember their dream, so they they just look around and they say, oh, I had a dream. Oh, really? What was your dream? There was a clock and it was having its breakfast and you're like, oh my word. 
It's not a dream, you're just making it up. But, you know, so, so Joseph told his dream, and in his dream it was like, behold this, behold this, behold... It was a proper dream, no, no clock-eating breakfast. And, and he was telling this dream about the brothers bowing down to... It was so obvious, even though it was symbolic, it was so obvious what he meant. And they hated him for it. And then he got another one, and he just said it again. You think, well, come on, Joseph, I get a grip. The first time didn't go down too well. What do you think this is going to do? Convince them? But he comes and he tells them again. And this time he bugs his father as well. So that all 11 verses are like this swirling mess of, of, of inter-sibling rivalry and tension and jealousy. I suppose what we, you might notice if you've read the part before is that there's also intergenerational stuff going on. After all, what was Jacob's problem when he was little? His dad had a favorite and it wasn't him. And he got into all sorts of dire situations, ended up having to leave the land because he was so desperate to take things that his dad wanted to give to someone else. And so what does he do when he has children? He has a favorite. And he takes the sins of the father and he repeats them to the next generation. That's just a reality of parenting, isn't it? Those of us that are parents, I'm sure that at some point or another, you've all found yourself hearing your children say something and going, oh, they got that from me. And there's this kind of passing it on down through the generations and there's, there's sort of the repetition and you think, oh, come on, of all people, if there's anyone that's going to understand the danger of showing favoritism, it's Jacob. And he just goes and does it. I love the fact that the Bible doesn't hide from the realities of life, you know? It doesn't say and the next hero is Joseph and he had a coat and he was cool and he dreamed dreams you know it's not that when when the bible tells a story it tells it warts and all now was was Joseph bad or good I don't think he's particularly either way he's pretty much naive he's very teenage you may have noticed that he's 17 years of age he can't control his mouth he says what he thinks no matter who you know well they've just got to live with it and so he's just running his mouth off and creating all this tension in the home and it's just very very normal isn't it i love the fact that the bible's like that that it doesn't sugarcoat and pretend and rewrite and make everything into a a wonderful story anyone here seen joseph and the amazing technicolor dream coat i Forgive me, but the songs are running through my mind. This, this is, I mean, just think about it. Joseph's living his life as a 17-year-old. I guarantee he wasn't thinking. 4,000 years from now, they're going to make a musical of my life. <laughs> you know, like they're going to sing about me. They're going to strip God completely away from the entire thing and never mention him. But they're going to sing about me. And it's all going to be about your dreams coming true. And it's all sweet and lovely. And any dream will do. And he didn't think that, did he? He was just there in the midst of his family with his brothers who were a pain and his father who showed favoritism and created all sorts of tension with his awkward attire that created even more tension and it was just normal life for him. It was just messy. (coughs) Excuse me, try to save you from that. So the story then goes on. We've got this horizontal tension. We've got intergenerational problems. And it just seems to be a problem just brewing, doesn't it? It's like you don't need to read the next bit to know that trouble's coming. Interestingly, by the way, when we think about Joseph and his experience, we've had these two dreams. In terms of his experience of God, that's it. 
His great-grandfather, Abraham, met the Lord multiple times, face-to-face, spoke to him, knew what he looked like. God walking on two legs, a Jesus before Jesus was born kind of visitation. Abraham had that connection with God. His grandfather, Isaac, he met the Lord. His own father, Jacob, had wrestled with the Lord through the night and in the morning said, face of God, that's what I'm going to name this place because I've seen all of those three generations had this incredible exposure to God. And then Joseph lives his life. And what does he have? Two dreams. That's not really that solid, is it? And over the coming chapters, there's going to be year after year, decade after decade with no voice from heaven, no wrestling or eating supper with God or anything like that. He's living with a God who is silent. And in the midst of the mundane things of life and in the midst of the tragic things of life, to have a God who is silent is a real struggle, isn't it? We know that. Because that's our experience. And the challenge for us, just like it was a challenge for him, is what do we do? How do we live when we know that God is silent, but we know that that doesn't mean he's absent? Just because God is silent doesn't mean he's uninvolved. He's involved, but we can't always see it. We can't always feel it. We can feel the boredom. We can feel the sadness. We can feel the tragedy. But we can't feel what it means to have a God with us. So let's keep going in the text. So the story's going to create uh, its problem now. The brothers were uh, off pastoring or pasturing, I can't say that word, their father's flock near Shechem. That's some distance away. So, so Jacob, Israel, said to Joseph, okay, you go and check on them. I'm going to send you to them. Let's just scan down the page here. So he went to uh, Shechem. And there he's lost. Look at that, verse 15. A man found him wandering in the fields with his plush coat on. What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Where, where are they pasturing their flock? And the man said, oh, they've gone away. I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, you kind of go, well, what's the point of this detail? It's almost underlining how vulnerable he is. He's left his father, he's left home, he's out in a field and he's lost. He can't find his brothers. And then someone, just a passerby, says, I I overheard them say Dothan. Okay, I'm going to Dothan. Twelve miles further, he goes to Dothan. Now he's really on his own. He's completely out of sight. He's out of range. His phone has got no signal. Like He is very much on his own at this point, right? Verse 18 They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, literally the master dreamer is what they said. I think that's kind of cool. Here's the master dreamer, the Lord of dreams. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams." But when Reuben heard it, Reuben's the eldest, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. He he was planning to come back and rescue him later. Now, if you go back, you'll discover that Reuben had already totally messed up. His father had no time for him whatsoever. And this is probably Reuben's attempt to kind of get back in his father's good books. But typical Reuben, it absolutely fails. I won't give that away yet. So verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, 
there was no water in it. It feels like a bit of a relief, I would imagine. You think getting thrown into a pit, a bit of a cistern, at least there's no water. He's not going to drown. Well, it's not that nice. A cistern in the desert is like an oven. And so he's baking in this cistern. And the brothers had already planned to, to say that he'd been devoured by animals. And so what do they do? Well, they play the part of the animals. They sat down to eat. And so they're sitting down to, to eat their falafel sandwiches or whatever it was they had. And just at that moment, they looked up and there's a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. So then Judah pipes up. He's the fourth of the brothers. He says, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Financially, it doesn't make much sense, does it? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And they'll go, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, he is our brother. Let's sell him. All right? I mean, these brothers, they are quite, quite the crew. So the brothers listened to him, and the Midianites came past, and they drew Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. So then Reuben comes back. don't know where he's been, but Reuben comes back, and he sees that Joseph's not in the pit, and so he tears his clothes because his plan's not working and returns to his brothers and says, the boy's gone. Where, where am I supposed to go? Like, what do I do now? And so they took Joseph's robe and they killed a goat and they dipped the robe in the blood and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Could you, uh, would you mind identifying it? Is this your son's robe or not? And Jacob identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces and Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters, so he had more than one, rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol, that's the place of the dead, to my son Morning. I'm going down to my son, and you can't stop me. I'm just going to cry my way into the grave. That's what he's saying. Thus his father wept for him. It's tragic, isn't it? I mean, what a mess. A family that, that is having arguments about dreams over breakfast, and by dinner they're mourning the loss of Joseph. For Jacob, this is absolute tragedy. After everything that he'd gone through, and to then have the, the son that he longed to have, not these other pain in the neck sons, but this one, the precious one, and now he's been devoured by an animal. And the brothers are there with their fake tears going, oh, you poor thing, you poor thing. And they're just living out this incredible lie. And, and you just go, oh, this is horrible. But this is normal in a sense, isn't it? This is human life. This is the way of humanity in a fallen world. It's tragic. In some ways, it's pathetic. It's, it's evil. It's, it's unkind. It's uncaring. I mean, it just the whole thing is, is sort of shot through with, with a sort of DNA of nastiness to it. And, and I wonder, when you're in that kind of situation, when, when tragedy strikes and God seems so incredibly silent, what do you do? How do you cope in that circumstance how do you know how to live for Jacob and for uh, the brothers maybe that wasn't what they were thinking of but what about for Joseph 
Joseph has been thrown in a pit, had his coat ripped off him. He, he's seen the look on his brother's faces. He knows they want him dead. Now he's been sold to slave traders and he's trudging his way across the desert to Egypt. He's shackled to the person in front and ankle connected to the person behind. And one step at a time, he's walking out of the country, out of the land of promise, out of God's plan, out of, like, where's God in all of this? He's just going one step at a time to a horrible future. There's, there's not much in this chapter that gives us hope, is there? I, I suppose the best I can do is, is to point you to verse 36. So, so Jacob and the boys are all gathered around and you know, they're passing him tissues and he's weeping and mourning and they're like looking at each other like, oh, well, this, you know, it is what it is. And that whole thing's going on and it seems to be that the whole universe is collapsing in on Jacob. But verse 36 says... Meanwhile, and, and I think actually that's, that's all we've got. Here's what I mean. You can be in a circumstance, whether you're Jacob or whether you're Joseph, you can be in your circumstance and you can be surrounded by your difficulty and your struggle and it can seem so overwhelmingly impossible and God can seem so incredibly disconnected and uninvolved. And you can be in the midst of that and it can feel like this is it. This is the end of the universe for me. This is, there's nothing else. But there is a meanwhile. You see, the meanwhile here is Jacob's there and all that stuff's going on. But meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, dot, dot, dot. That's like something's happening and we don't know what that means. We don't know what the significance is. We don't know who Potiphar is. Well, you know what his title is, but, but, but what's he like? What's it mean? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? We don't know. But meanwhile, something is happening. And for the past few thousand years, people who have lived in this world in the combination of tragic and pathetic, feeling very much removed from anything epic, have had their lives woven together by a God who is at work, a God who does have a plan, a God who has made promises and will fulfill those promises. And at this point, at the end of Genesis 37, we've not even got a mention of God, but we've got a hint that he's doing something. And for now, that's what we're going to have to hold on to. Here we are living our lives, and we don't feel like we're living anything particularly epic, and we can't really see how God's weaving it together. And, and often we're just changing nappies and, and dealing with children that are crying and dealing with stuff that just seems so mundane, and it seems so insignificant. Meanwhile, God's writing a story. Meanwhile, God's doing something. He's doing something here where we are. He's doing something in other places that we don't know about. He's working in people's lives that we haven't met yet. He's working his purposes out, not just over the course of a few weeks or a few months, but over the course of millennia. Because God, the God of Genesis, is the God who makes promises and over the course of thousands of years works out his promises. And so what do we do? We've just got to trust him. We've just got to take the next step. If you find yourself shackled to another prisoner and you're walking across the desert to Egypt, you've just got to take the next step. If you're there and you've just received tragic news and it's utterly just ripped the bottom out of your heart, what do you, what do, you do? You've you just got to get through that next two minutes and then the next two and then the next two. 
And if you're going into work and your work seems so pointless and so frustrating, what do you do? Well, go in and get through another day, trusting that even though God may be silent, he's not absent. Even though you can't see how this thing fits as part of anything significant, keep going. Because our God is a God who may be silent, but he's never absent. And he's got a purpose, and he's got a plan, and he's got promises to work out. And as we're going to see next week, he's with us. He's with us in the midst of everything we face. And so let me encourage you again, read Genesis 37, 38, 39. Keep going, read the whole story, and see how God is at work in Joseph's life. And pray to him and ask him to help you trust him that he's at work in your life too. Let me pray for us and then I'll tell you what we're going to do next. Father, I just want to thank you that this uh, really epic story of Joseph begins with a thoroughly dysfunctional family. And the reason I thank you for that is because none of us sit here thinking our family's perfect. We know the struggles that go on every week. We know the sleeplessness, the interrupted nights, the arguments, the the tensions, the difficulties, the falling out, the jealousy, all the kind of things that just seem so, and so normal and so discouraging. And yet, meanwhile, you're working out your purposes. You're working out your purposes in other places, but you're also working out your purposes in our lives, even in ways we cannot see. And so, Lord, we pray that as a group of your people this week, in the little things that we face, in the little trials, the little struggles, and the big ones too, whatever it is that these next few days hold, Lord, we pray that we would take one step after the other, looking to you and trusting you, even when we don't know what your purposes are because we know that your purposes are good. And so we trust you, and we ask you to be at work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.